Well, last week we learned how Sunday mornings uh, we gather together for many reasons. One of them is to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus because he rose on a Sunday morning. We celebrate Sunday mornings because Sunday morning is when he showed himself to his disciples. And then he didn't show himself to his disciples for another for the rest of the week until the next Sunday morning. Again, he showed himself to the disciples. We celebrate Sunday mornings because that's the morning, that's the day, as a matter of fact, in the afternoon, when the Holy Spirit fell and the church was birthed on the day of Pentecost. That's why we gather here on Sunday mornings. We celebrate on Sunday mornings because that's the, we see, that's the pattern we see in the New Testament when they gather together to break bread on Sunday morning, as we did this morning. We also see that they gathered together not just to break bread, but to hear the Apostle Paul preach. And he preached so long, somebody actually fell asleep and fell out the window. <laughs> and uh, he died. But the Apostle Paul walked down, raised him from the dead, and then carried on preaching. We celebrate Sunday mornings because that's what we see not just the New Testament church do in the book of Acts, but that's what we see the early church do throughout the first and the second centuries. So as we gather on Sunday morning, we join those brothers and sisters in history. We join the Apostle Paul. We join the early church. We join the church of the book of Acts. We join the disciples as the Holy Spirit fell and the church was birthed. We join Jesus as he rose from the dead and showed himself to his disciples week in and week out. We gather together on a Sunday morning to celebrate just that. Isn't that exciting? But how many of you have attempted to read through the Bible, and as you read through the Bible, you wonder, what in the world is this for? <laughs> what is this? And then it goes, sometimes it just almost seems like you're all over the place. And you wonder at times how everything connects. Have you ever wondered that, how things connect? And so what we want to do today is we want to thread the silver lining through all the different covenants made by God to man. And the reason for this is because we are approaching Resurrection Sunday. And uh, we're going to have a Good Friday service. As, as a Pentecostal, we've always had Good Friday services. Han as a, and Sam as a, what were you guys? I forget. Anglican, Anglican you guys had celebrated... Um, Good Friday every year, and as a charismatic, we s celebrated Good Friday every year, and as a word faith, I celebrate Good Friday every year, and, uh, but I know all major denominations basically celebrate Good Friday, and it is the Friday when Jesus was crucified, and we're going to celebrate that. And I remember, it was, it was uh, last year or so, uh, we were actually having, if I can use the Marshalls as an example, we were having a birthday party, and we were celebrating. You know, sometimes they have these, these birthday parties all at the same day. Everybody's birthday, let's all celebrate you just on the same day. <laughs> and uh, we do that too. Like Tina's birthday was on a Wednesday, and then we decided to have her birthday celebration on that Saturday. And I invited people, and actually they all came. The Marshalls invited people, and they all came to celebrate uh, Nathan, Matthew, and Elena's birthday. Everybody's birthday was celebrated on the same day. But never did I hear anybody say, I'm not coming to Tina's Saturday birthday party because that's not when she was born. 
She was born Wednesday. The day that Wednesday was her birthday. How dare you celebrate her on the Saturday? And so, to drive a point home, on Friday, we're going to celebrate the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. And on Sunday, we're going to celebrate His resurrection. Amen? Amen. Amen. The Bible says He was in the grave for three days and three nights. And we're good with that. Amen? Amen. And there are many ways to view that, many, and all of them seem right. The first one to plead his cause seems to be in the right until the second one comes around. <laughs> that's what the Bible says. So Friday, we're going to have, that Friday, we're going to have a good Friday service. And then that Sunday morning, we're going to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And uh, it, as a run-up to that, I wanted to share with you this thread that needles all the way through Scripture so that when you open up your Bible next time and you read, you can actually put in context where things are at. So, Brother uh, Steve, if you don't mind just getting me that board, I appreciate it. I wanted to start by showing you how the kingdom of God develops. Because oftentimes what we do is we live in a slice of human history and everyone who lives in that slice believes everything that God ever planned to do throughout history of humanity is going to happen in that slice. Now, God works over time, long periods of time. Mark 4, verse 30 says this. And he said, with what can we compare the kingdom of God? How can I explain to you the kingdom of God? Then he carries on. He says, so what parable shall we use for it? Basically saying, I really want to explain to you guys how the kingdom works. And let me think about what example I can use to help you grasp what the kingdom is like. He says in verse 31, it is like a grain of mustard seed, which when sown on the ground is the smallest of all the seeds on the earth. Yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger larger than all the garden plants, and puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in it, in its shade. So here we have an example of a small little mustard seed that over time grows to become the largest of all trees, and every, all the birds of the air, thank you, brother, can come and nest in it. So I have a few goals with today. I have a few goals, and the first is um, those of you who have not yet been baptized, I want to encourage you to get baptized, and if you are interested in doing so, you uh, can go to Kristen and make sure to let her know that you are interested, and we're going to put a date together and um, do our baptism. Then, another goal is Resurrection Sunday is coming up in two weeks, and I want you to invite friends and family. And then I also have another goal, and that is that we are currently reading through the Bible, and I want to help you understand how to unite the storyline that unfolds according to God's purposes. Now, in this parable of Mark 4, verse 30, Jesus predicts the amazing growth of the kingdom of heaven, and he compares it to this little mustard seed. This massive tree is the fulfillment of that seed, and just like 
A fully grown man is the fulfillment of what once was a little boy. So is the kingdom of God. His kingdom is ever unfolding, ever growing, ever being fulfilled. And we see the same parable of the seed, mustard seed, turning into the biggest tree in the garden in Matthew 13, 31, in Mark 40, verse 30, and Luke 13, verse 18. So what is so fascinating about the story is that history proves that Jesus' prediction is in fact true. If you think about it, it started with Jesus. Jesus raised up the 12 disciples. From the 12 disciples, there were 70 disciples. And from the 70 disciples, we have the 3,000 that got saved on the day of Pentecost. And the flame of the gospel burned throughout the, throughout the dark ages, all the way to the Reformation, and then from the Reformation all the way here where we are today. The gospel of Jesus Christ is marching on. The gates of hell cannot prevail against it, and nothing, nothing can stop this tree from becoming the largest tree in the garden, and from, from birds from every single nation, tribe, and tongue will come and nest in it. The gospel is going forth. You think that a government's trying to put a lid on the gospel. Not possible. Not possible. It's almost like when, when a lid gets put onto it, by political leaders, it becomes like a, a pressure cooker. That's what I meant to say. Thank you. I almost said cooker pressure, but <laughs> I'm glad you helped me. So what I would like to point out, though, is how slow and how steady the unfolding of what God is doing. It is like a growing seed, slow, steady, but consistent. And that is exactly what we see when it comes to the unfolding of God's plan, so, uh, plan of salvation throughout time. You see, the Bible is one story. We're reading the first books of the Bible, and as we're reading through the books of the Bible with a Bible reading challenge, I mean, I, I can only imagine when we sit around the table and we're reading, I can only imagine how many people in our congregation, when they read through it, they go like, what is this about? Why in the world am I even reading this? There is just so much to it. It is the most fantastic, most amazing book. And do you know, it is at least my um, conviction that we will one day in heaven be studying scriptures. The very word of God. It is inexhaustible. You cannot reach the end. However, we have to start by understanding that the Word of God, the whole Bible, from Genesis 1 all the way through to the end of Revelation is one story. 66 different books written by more than 40 different authors on three different continents over a span of one and a half thousand years. All of them writing in perfect harmony, in perfect unison, Unison and harmony. Wow. You get what I'm saying. All about this issue of God saving man. God saving man. This is the story of the Bible. Now, it works itself out in many ways. People's marriages are saved. People are healed. People's relationships are, 
are redeemed, families are saved, generations come to the Lord, the common grace of God is helping man develop. Much happens because of the gospel, but it's that seed that over time produces a tremendous amount of progress within us and without us. The Bible is one story. The Bible is the story of God's plan of salvation. And to follow God's story of salvation, we have to recognize how His plan of salvation unfolds across multiple covenants. Reformed theologians see God's entire plan of salvation as hanging on the concept of covenant. If you don't really understand covenant, you couldn't put the Bible together. This is the reason people don't read their Bibles because they can't make sense of it and they cannot make sense of it because they don't understand covenants. Covenants. Covenant is the framework in which redemption is carried out. This is how God developed His plan of salvation through covenants. Among others, theologians usually distinguish between five different major covenants. The covenant of redemption, which, which was made between God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Then there is, secondly, the covenant or the Noahic covenant that God made with Noah. The rainbow. Then we have the Abrahamic covenant that God made with Abraham, the father of many nations. We have Father Abraham had many sons. Many sons had Father Abraham, right? Who were his sons? Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Jacob had 12 sons. Joseph was one of them, 12 sons. They all started their families. Their families turned into tribes, and thus we have Israel, the Hebrew nation. And so we have the covenant of redemption between God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We have, secondly, the, co the Noahic covenant between God and Noah. We have the Abrahamic covenant between God and Abraham. Then we have the Mosaic covenant between God and Moses. Then we have the covenant of grace, the new covenant, the blood covenant of the cross between God and you. First, let's define the meaning of covenant before we develop those covenants because as we understand those covenants, we will start we will be able to start opening up our book in the book of Le the book of the Bible at Leviticus, and we can understand what's going on. We can open our Bible at Noah's time, and, and we can understand what's going on in Genesis. We can open up our Bible during Moses, and we know what's going on. We can open up our New Testament, and we can see how God has developed His commitment to humanity throughout time like a little seed from the beginning, and then ultimately His kingdom is established, and it's the largest tree in the garden, and all the trees from, all the birds from everywhere nest in it. He becomes the largest rock, remember? Remember the, the vision? The prophet saw this rock cut out in the mountain by the hand of God, and this rock rolled down and destroyed this, uh, this statue, and then this rock started growing and growing and growing and filled the whole earth just as the glory of God will fill the earth just as the waters fill the ocean. I want to tell you that you're on the right team. You're on the winning team. The kingdom of God is going forward. So first let's define the meaning of covenant. Covenant is the agreement between two or more parties. 
Our entire world, as a matter of fact, revolves around this concept of agreements. Think about it. Two sports teams, they come and they play according to the rules both sides agreed upon. Marriage partners are bound by agreement, a covenant. Business is based on agreements and contracts between two parties coming together and working it out. Different countries import and they export to one another. They do business based on mutual agreements. All of society functions on the basis of agreements made. In the same way, God's plan of salvation is in fact an agreement based um, on God's terms. <laughs> it is covenantal. In other words, God's plan to save us, He did so by making agreements with us, making covenants with us. So what we want to look at today is how God went about developing His plan of salvation through these agreements. And so by having a clear understanding of covenant theology, the big picture of the Bible will become much clearer, and that is our goal for today. As we are becoming more and more acquainted and uh, relational with some of the churches that are signing up for Bible school, and, and I'm, I, I, there must be over 300, I'm not sure. But these churches, basically, um, as I'm able to go to their websites and I'm able to listen to some of the sermons and stuff like that, I do realize that... Um, mm, how to say that. I, you know, one of the, the biggest problems that we have in the world today is biblical illiteracy. It's taking the Bible and making of it whatever you need for it to be. And I believe that the Lord is raising up this congregation to be different in this sense that we are a word people. We believe in the, in, the, the inerrancy of scriptures because it's God-breathed. We believe in the infallibility of scriptures because it's God-breathed. We believe in the sufficiency of scripture because it's, God, it's what God gave us. And so we are going to understand the word of God in context. So the first we have to talk about is the covenant of redemption. I'm going to start down here. And I'm so sorry if you cannot see it. Maybe you can come and see it afterwards. All right. This is the covenant of redemption. And as I mentioned to you, the covenant of redemption is found in scriptures that it was between God, the Holy Spirit, and the Son. How do we know this? How do we know that they made a covenant with one another before time? We see that in Revelation chapter 13, verse 8. Look at this verse quick. This is going to be, I believe, if you love scriptures, um, this is going to be fascinating to you. But God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit came and agreed upon something. It says in Revelation 13, 18, All inhabitants of the earth will worship the beast, all whose name have not been written in the Lamb's book of life. Keep going. The Lamb who was what? Slain. When? From the creation of the world. 
from the creation of the world. We see this echoed in 1 Peter, 1 Peter 1, verse 18 and 20. Knowing that you were not redeemed with, un, with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ. So let's just make sense of that sentence. It says, knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things, but with the precious blood of Christ as the lamb without blemish and without spot. And here it comes. He indeed was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you. When was Christ ordained to come to earth and die on a cross? Before the foundations of the world. That was established. That was done. Again, in 1 Corinthians 2 verse 6, it says, We do, however, speak a message of wisdom among the mature, but not the wisdom of the age or of the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. No, we declare God's wisdom a mystery. God's wisdom is a mystery that has been hidden and that God destined for our glory before time began. Before time began. Verse 8, none of the rulers of this age understood this mystery. For if they understood it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. In other words, the rulers of this world did not know that before time began, the mystery of the cross was already established. How crazy is that? Isn't that amazing? Huh? Before time began, before the foundations of the world, there was Jesus preordained to one day hang on a cross. You see, uh, um, let, me not, let me not jump ahead. You see, all three persons of the Godhead is united in the work of your salvation. God the Father elects Christ's bride, very clearly stated in 2 Thessalonians 2.13, Colossians 3.20, Ephesians 1.5. Jesus makes atonement and purchases the bride God chose for Him, clearly stated in 1 Corinthians 7.23, 1 Peter 1.18 and 19, Ephesians 1.7. And then we see the Holy Spirit draws every one person God elects into Christ he regenerates them. In other words, He births them. When you were born again, it was the Holy Ghost that birthed you. And then He seals you for the day of redemption. Titus 3, 5, Revelation 20, 20, 22, 17, Ephesians 4, 30. So God the Father elects. God the Son comes and purchases who God elected for Him. And then the Holy Spirit draws them, births them into God's family, and then seals them for the day of redemption. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit saves you. Jesus dying on the cross was not God's plan B. God didn't come and create this perfect garden of Eden. Gave them this command to go forth, multiply, be fruitful, multiply, and subdue the earth. And then, are you kidding? Unbelievable. Everything I tried just doesn't work out, does it? Now what am I going to do? Jesus, will you go save him? <laughs> That's not how it happened. God didn't have to come up with a plan B to save humanity. It was already planned, preordained before time began, before the foundations of the world. So in other words, when God's wrath falls on Jesus, it is not the Trinity at war. That's not what happened. There was an agreement before time began. They in perfect unity. He willingly gave Himself. It was always God's plan. 
And this plan is called the covenant of redemption. It was an agreement made between God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. The, the way God then unfolds this covenant of redemption is by making multiple covenants with different people. Over a period of 4,000 years, over a period of 4,000 years, God is developing His plan of redemption, His covenant of redemption. Do you realize that you and I are gathered here today because God has made promises to us? That's why we are here, because of God's promise. Christians have an eternal hope. Why? Because God promised them. That's why they have hope. You have faith. And your faith is in the promise God has made you through His Word. That's why... You see, if you had to take all the promises out of the Bible, there would be no Christianity at all. Christianity hangs on promises from God. Christianity hangs on the covenants God has made with man. Christianity is based on these promises. And these promises were made to humans by God through covenants, through agreements. I really do believe that the idea of covenant needs to be taught a lot more. Because that's the hinge the door of Christianity swings on. That's what it hangs on. That's what makes it Christianity. The promises of God made by, through covenants to man. So God doesn't just verbalize these covenants that He made. He actually visualizes them, visualizes them to us so we can understand them clearly. We can see what they predict and we can see them fulfilled and we can celebrate the fulfillment of the prediction. So we see the first one, covenant of redemption. And now to develop that, He starts off with the Noahic covenant. Noahic covenant. I'm going to do small here because Noah plus IC. Noahic covenant. Okay. The Noahic covenant. That's what he did with Noah. During this time of Noah, the people on the earth were wicked. And as a result of their wickedness, God, in His justice, killed them, drowned them, with the exception of Noah and his family. This is what a just, righteous judge would do to all those who live wickedly. They deserved to be destroyed, and so they were. God was establishing justice. He did nothing wrong by drowning the whole world, including mothers and their babies. He drowned everybody. And he was right to do so. However, because think about it. You know, these people that have a problem with it, if you ask them, hey, would you, if God is all powerful and God is all good, don't you think he should, just, he should just wipe out all evil? And people go, yeah, why isn't he wiping out the evil? Because if he did, he'd have to wipe you out too. That's why. That's why he had to make this covenant with Noah. So he could have a people long enough to establish the initial covenant he made with himself. All right? Makes sense? Because he loved, however, he orchestrated a just and righteous plan to redeem man. 
So he can give man a promise. And the sign of that covenant of promise was what? A rainbow. A rainbow. This promise that he would never again flood the earth was like he did in Noah's time. And the significance of the rainbow image is that God has taken his war bow and he hung it up. But not only did he hang up his war bow, instead of aiming his war bow at man like he did during the flood, that's what he did, because he went to war with the wicked generation. Instead of aiming it at man like he did during the flood, he now turns it up to heaven where he is at. So now the bow is aiming up. This is God's promise that he will in the future take that next arrow. He will take that next arrow for, from his own war bow against man's sin and shoot it at himself. That's why when Jesus comes, he intercedes not between you and hell. He intercedes between you and God. Jesus came to save you from God. And that's why his war bow is now up at himself. He came and crushed his son instead of flooding you and wiping you out. We'll see that in Genesis 9 verse 12. It says, and then God said, quote, this is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. Verse 13, I have set my bow in the cloud and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that it's between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the water shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every, li every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. All right, so we see the second covenant he made is the Noahic covenant. And the sign of that covenant that tells you that it was made is the rainbow. The third covenant is the Abrahamic covenant. The third covenant is the Abrahamic covenant. The Abrahamic covenant, all right? Abraham, I see. <clears throat> this is to say, this covenant that he made with Abraham, that even he now aims, even though he now aims his bow no longer at man, but his war bow is now aimed at himself in becoming the substitute target of man's sins, this is not the full, complete picture of his plan of salvation. Just like a seed is perfect, that little mustard seed is perfect, but it's not fulfilled. Just like that boy is perfectly formed at the age of three, five, and ten, but not yet mature, 
he has not yet been fulfilled. So also the Noahic, Noahic covenant was perfect, but it wasn't complete. Why? Because Noah died, but sin lived on. Noah died, but sin lived on after the rainbow. And therefore God now develops his plan. He goes to Abraham and he makes a covenant with Abraham. And this is God's next step of unfolding his divine mystery of salvation. And that would come to the world through Abraham's family. He says, look up at the stars of the sky. And I'm telling you, you're going to have more children than that. He says, but God, I'm 100. <laughs> what am I going to do? God says, it's uh, planned this way because it's not going to be because of your flesh. It's going to be because of my miracle. And he gives a sign for this covenant. And what is the sign for this covenant? Circumcision. Now, circumcision. Why did God choose a sign that involved the cutting away of the flesh? Because it served as a picture and an image of God's future spiritual work of salvation, cutting away the calloused heart, cutting away the stony heart. It reflected a future spiritual heart surgery that God himself would perform on his elect. Just as Noah died, and even though he had a sign that promised, that showed that God had made a covenant with him, sin lived on. Then Abraham died in the same way, and even though he had a sign that God had a covenant with him, sin lived on. And then we get to the third, I mean the fourth covenant, the fourth covenant, as God unfolds, now, you might go, where's this going? Follow, because it comes very nicely together right at the end, okay? Maybe what we should do is say now, to see the end of this, come next week. <laughs> Noahic, Abrahamic, and then the Mosaic. Thank you. Wow. For a minute, I went blank there. <laughs> Do you know that it's difficult to spell when you're writing on a board? Yeah. <laughs> you know what it's not difficult to spell is if you're texting. <laughs> and then God makes a covenant with Moses. <clears throat> and the sign of this covenant that God makes with Moses is what? Uh, yeah, all together, Sabbath. Sabbath is the sign uh, that God has made this covenant. So also, even though Moses died, and they had the Sabbath as a sign that proved that God made a covenant with them, and of course, with each covenant came many promises, right? And as God made this covenant with Moses, Moses died, yet the same thing lives on, which is sin. Sin lived on after Noah. Sin lived on after Abraham. Sin lived on after Mo uh, Moses. There was this big problem with the covenant of God that he made with Moses, which was this. The tablets of stone that the law was inscribed upon, this rock that the law was on, could not make hearts desire God. They could obey out of fear, but they couldn't desire, they couldn't love they couldn't become willing to worship God. 
And so the plan here is then to take what was written on, sta- on tablets of stone and to write it on the heart instead and turn that stony heart into flesh that could love, that could desire, and could be willing to worship God. And this is where the promise came with this covenant that was made with Moses. In Jeremiah chapter 31, here is this promise made before it even happened. Before God came, took your stony heart out and put it in a heart of flesh and caused you to love Him, caused you to desire Him, caused you to be willing to worship Him. He changed your want to. He works in you both to will, to will, to will, and to do His good pleasure. It is God's work in you. I always say it this way. It takes God to want God. If God didn't touch your heart, you wouldn't want Him. You wouldn't desire Him. You wouldn't care for Him. Just like everybody else who today doesn't care for Him. It takes a miracle. And here it is. It's prophesied in Jeremiah 31. It says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand and to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. So he says he will make a new covenant with them. Let's look at this new, this new covenant through Jesus. And this is the fifth one. Uh, we're going to just call this the new covenant. This new covenant, it's an unfolding of all the previous covenants. The night before his execution, Jesus announces his new covenant. In Luke chapter 22, verse 20, he says, And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. This is why we meet on Sunday mornings, to celebrate this very covenant that God has made with you. It's a brand new covenant. And it's a covenant in the blood that he spilled. This new covenant is how God will reconcile man back to himself, not only in promises and in pictures that serves as types and as shadows, but in a very real way. This new covenant of grace also has signs, which are what? Number one, baptism. And communion. Baptism and communion. These are signs of the new covenant. What will this new covenant do? Here are a few things it will do. Number one, the new covenant will give us a new heart. Look at this Jeremiah 31, 33a. For this is a new covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. Remember the problem with the law of Moses? It was on stone. Tablets of stone. And it couldn't make men love God, desire God, or willing to worship God. But God decided to take that and put it in them. It says in Romans chapter 2, verse 28 and 29, A person is not a Jew who is one only outwardly, nor is circumcision merely outward and physical. No, a person is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is 
is circumcision of the heart by the Spirit. The circumcision of the heart by the Spirit. That's what this new covenant will do. It'll give us new hearts. Hearts that love Him. Hearts that respond to Him. Hearts that is willing to worship Him. Hearts that is alive. The second thing this new covenant will do is this new covenant will make restitution between God and man. Jeremiah 31, 33 says, And I will be their God, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Romans 5, 10 says, For if, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by His life. So we see that this new covenant gives us a brand new heart. This new covenant reconciles us with God. And number three, we see that this new covenant will form a new family, God's family. So under the old covenant, Israelites entered that covenant community by birth. In other words, you had to be born from Jewish parents in order to be Jewish. And then you had to be circumcised as a sign that you are. But under the new covenant... We enter this family of God not by being born in a certain natural family. We enter this family of God by being born again. The new birth, this regeneration that comes to us from the Holy Spirit and we put our faith in Jesus Christ as a result. We see that in Jeremiah 31, 34. It says, And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each teach his brother, saying, Know the Lord. For they shall all know me from the, east, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will, I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. What's it saying here? It's like, it's saying that no longer would you have to go and say, come on, know God now. You've got to learn to know God. It's like those people whom God has touched their hearts, He circumcised their hearts, He put His law on their hearts, He gave them a desire, and now they become a willing creature, a brand new creature, born again. You don't have to, you don't have to tell them, no God! They want to know God. They don't need you to tell them, command them that they have to know God. No, they want to know God. They desire God. They are willing to worship Him. Their hearts have been circumcised. Let me read that to you again. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, because I will forgive them their sins. So we're coming in for a landing here. Just as the rainbow was the sign of the Noahic covenant, Circumcision was the sign of the Abrahamic covenant. Sabbath is the sign of the Mosaic covenant. So also baptism and communion are the signs of the new covenant. All right? And this is the fulfillment, the new covenant is the fulfillment of the signs of each covenant. Just like the fulfillment of a seed is a massive tree. Just as the grown man is a fulfillment of what he used to be as a little boy, so the kingdom of God is being fulfilled. It was initially one promise. And the first promise is that her seed will crush his head. It was the first promise that was given. It's given to 
the snake. <laughs> and from that promise all the way up to this new covenant promise, the kingdom of God is going forth and it is being built. The gates of hell cannot prevail. The church is marching on through heresy, through weaknesses, through faults. God is raising up His kingdom. I was sitting here this morning while Alex was doing communion. And as I was doing communion, I was thinking about that thousand years, well, it was less. But for almost a thousand years, how the gospel was hidden. And while it was hidden, there was a group called the Waldesians. And this group was the only group at the time that actually had the gospel. And they were hiding from the church of the day during the Dark Ages. They were hiding because they were being slaughtered. They weren't allowed to have scriptures on them. It's like in China today in certain places. You're not allowed to have scriptures on you. They weren't allowed to have scriptures on them either. They weren't allowed to read them. But these people were hiding in caves, the Waldesians, and they... I only imagined them, and they were hiding in, they lived in caves. And I only imagined them this morning. I wonder what they were dressed in. I wonder what their meeting place looked like. Who gave them the right to have communion? Who gave them the right to serve communion to each other? And I only imagined them sitting in that cave, sharing communion. Imagine if you had to go to China today, and you go to an underground church somewhere, and here they are sitting in a circle with a little candle, and they're busy breaking bread together and having communion. And you go like, hey, who told you you're allowed to do that? <laughs> would you say that? No, you would be overjoyed. You'd be, it's an amazing thing. Here they are having communion. You know, the church today, they've become so legalistic about so many things. Hey, listen, you're supposed to have communion, all right? I'm just thinking about that flame that's existed throughout time. So just as the rainbow was a sign of the Noahic covenant, circumcision was a sign of the Abrahamic covenant, Sabbath was a sign of the Mosaic covenant, so also baptism and communion are the signs of the new covenant. And this is the fulfillment of... The new covenant is the fulfillment of those signs, all of them, all of them. Just like the fulfillment of a seed, just like the fulfillment of a little boy, the promise of the rainbow has been fulfilled as the arrow of God's wrath was aimed at the cross. The promise of circumcision has been fulfilled as God now circumcises the hearts of those whom He saves. The promise of the Sabbath has been fulfilled as those who are in Christ have entered their rest from working to be saved. Baptism and communion is still practiced as we are given those opportunities to show the covenant sign of being in this new covenant, buried with Christ, raised with Christ. We receive communion, putting in remembrance everything that He has done for us. Amen. Did you get something out of the Word? Amen. So we can thread 
throughout scriptures, this one storyline put together by promises God made, you and I. So I want to close with this. If you are not yet baptized, you need to be baptized if you're born again. And your baptism is your public expression of what privately happened to you, personally happened to you. You show on the outside what happened on the inside. You died, you were buried to self, and you rose in Christ alive with Him forevermore. And so if you're interested in getting baptized, please speak to Kristen. Also, I want to encourage you, invite people to our Good Friday service and invite people to our Resurrection Sunday service. Let's pray. Father, thank you for giving us your word. Thank you, Father God, for giving us a deeper understanding daily and daily. We know your word is inexhaustible. We cannot reach the bottom thereof. But Lord, I pray that you keep showing us what you are doing in us and through us. I thank you, Father God, that uh, we can unite. We unite not around one person's vision or the pastor's vision. We unite around the truth of your scriptures. And we thank you, Father God, as we see your scriptures, we see the time within history you have placed us, and we are thankful. Oh, we are thankful that you have placed us in uh, during the time of the new covenant, the day of the Lord. This is the day that the Lord has made, this new covenant. And we thank you, Father, for it in Jesus' mighty name. And all those who love the Lord said, Amen. Amen. God bless you. Thank you.